Now we turn to the letter to the Romans again this evening and to the final chapter, Romans chapter 16. The passage is on page 951 of the Pew Bible, and this evening as we come towards the end of Romans, we're going to read in from verse 25 through to the end in verse 27. Paul has given many greetings, dozens of greetings, uh, personally to Christians he knows, and those who know him in the Church of Rome, and passed on greetings from the little group of friends who appear to be in the house with him, uh, probably in Corinth, judging by the identity of those who are with him as he gets ready to hand this letter over, probably, to Phoebe, whom he refers to in chapter 16 and verse 1, in order that it may be taken to the church in Rome. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as I mentioned uh, last Lord's Day evening, we come for the last time in this series of studies in Paul's letter to the Romans to consider these closing words of doxology. Some of you I know have been here every single night as we've worked our way through, as I think, these 78 studies in Paul's letter to the Romans. And had I better foresight, we could have taken attendance, and those of you with perfect attendance at this point could have come forward and got your little prize for perfect attendance. Perhaps a copy of Paul's letter to the Romans would have been particularly appropriate. But we bid it farewell this evening. I don't like farewells. I don't like speaking at farewells. I don't like speaking to people during farewells. I'd rather, to tell the truth, write to them later on and tell them what is really on my heart. And I suppose that's because writing comes more readily to me than speaking. But it's surely not possible. It's not possible, certainly, for me to come to this stage in our journey through Romans without a little emotion. I said right at the beginning that although I've been ordained almost 40 years now, this is the first time that I've ever taken a congregation through Paul's letter to the Romans. Shame on me, you have probably been thinking for the last year and a half. Therefore, this is for me the first time, and I think quite certainly the last time I will ever expound Paul's letter 
to the Romans to a congregation. It makes one wish that one were 30 years old, and I could say to you, but we'll come back to Romans in about 10 years' time once we've worked our way through many other books of the Bible. And so you would understand if this evening I feel more than usually melancholy. And as though the Apostle Paul had the foresight to understand that a melancholy Scot in Columbia, South Carolina, would one day come to the end of the exposition of Romans to a beloved congregation, he closes his letter with a glorious and cheerful doxology. He lifts up our spirits and he lifts up our minds and hearts in praise and worship. That's what a doxology is. It is a word expressing praise and delight, admiration in the majesty, the wonder, the splendor of the grace of God, and particularly, of course, in Paul's letters, the grace of God in the clear view of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's rather a complex doxology. It is a kind of compound, complex sentence, but it's really, at the end of the day, basically simple. The message is, at the end of Romans, beginning of verse 25, to him, end of verse 27, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. I say it's a long doxology. It's the longest doxology, actually, in the New Testament. And though, as some of you would see from footnotes, if you use study Bibles, it has been questioned whether it really belongs to the end of Romans or not. Numbers of scholars through the years have doubted it really belongs here, sometimes for the strangest of reasons. For example, there is too much of a summary and too much of the language that the Apostle Paul has used in Romans for it to be an authentic doxology, which to most of us would have suggested if it summarizes the letter it's not surprising that the Apostle Paul finishes the letter with this great doxology. So I don't think we need to trouble ourselves with the question of whether this doxology really belongs here in Romans chapter 16 or not. It belongs here because it is a magnificent exposition of the riches that Paul has been bringing before us in the previous 16 chapters. He's got through, and we have skimmed over the surface of Romans. I freely, actually gladly admit that, would even underline it, that simply for a superficial skimming through Romans, it's taken us 78 studies. The marvelous thing is that now that he is the end of the letter that's taken us so long even to study superficially, his whole focus of attention is on God and on His glory. There is nothing here in the order of little Jack Horner. Do you know little Jack Horner? Is that an exclusively uh, British idiosyncrasy? Little Jack Horner sat in the corner eating his plum pudding pie. He put in his thumb and pulled out a plum and said, what a good boy am I. <laughs> 
And that because, as Martin Luther has said about Romans, as we saw at the beginning, it pulls down and destroys all the righteousness of the flesh. You know, sometimes when you see a whole uh, squadron of military people marching before uh, a head of state or a monarch, and they march, 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 and then suddenly the command goes, eyes right, and every head turns and acknowledges the sovereign or the leader of state. And in a sense, Paul is saying to us, eyes right, but eyes that are right at the end of Romans are eyes that are fixed on God and consumed with His majesty and glory. That's what this letter is here to do, to destroy all my self-sufficiency, to fix my eyes on the sufficiency and glory and majesty of the great God who in Jesus Christ has brought me such a great and glorious salvation. And Paul wants to praise him for two things. The first of them in verses 25 and 26, now to him who, and then in verse 27, to him who is the only wise God. And actually, there are two things that he's praising God for, strikingly, two themes that he picks up at the beginning of the next letter. Uh, You would almost think that the Apostle Paul, when he comes here, had known that we would order our New Testament this way, because the two things he focuses attention on as he summarizes the gospel is that the gospel has been a display of the power of God and the wisdom of God. He speaks about the power of God in verses 25 and 26, and in some ways it's a pity that our English translations don't catch that nuance of language. What Paul says really is this, now to him who has the power, to him who is powerful to strengthen you according to my gospel. He's not using a single verb that means to be able to strengthen, but two verbs. And what he's focusing our attention on is the power of God in the gospel. And that, of course, indicates to us that this really is the bookend of Romans. You remember when he had announced his theme in chapter 1, 16, and 17, I'm not ashamed of this gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. And now, having told them that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, whether Jew or Gentile, and having expounded that in great detail, he's returning to that as though to say, now that you have seen this, now I've expounded it, now that it's been put on display, eyes right, lift up your heart, Christian believer because your God has the power to strengthen you according to my gospel. So, the gospel 
that has the power to save us is the gospel that has the power to keep us. And that's his point in this doxology. The God who has justified you, the God who has set you apart and sanctified you in Jesus Christ, the God who is bringing you through tribulations to glory, is the very God who is able to strengthen you. Don't you see that? Indeed, this is what he had really wanted to do right at the very beginning. He had said, I want to come to you to impart some spiritual gift to you. Or rather, he said, so that we might share our spiritual gifts with one another, so that we might strengthen one another. How foolish we are, my dear friends, when we look somewhere else than the gospel to be strengthened in the Christian life as we so often do and lose sight of the fact that all strength is mediated to us exclusively in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as soon as he's mentioned that, he's, he's back to being the same old Paul, isn't he? As he's been right through this letter, this gospel, he says, that has broken through in our own time is a gospel that God has kept hidden, hidden a mystery that God has kept, as it were, to Himself until it should be truly and fully revealed in our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is our privilege. I think it's very difficult for us now unless we soak ourselves in Scripture to realize what Paul is saying here, as he belongs to the ancient people who have had all the promises of God and who, as the Apostle Peter says, even those through whom the promises of the Messiah came found themselves scratching their heads and saying, what is the meaning of this revelation that God has given to me of the Messiah? Who is he? When will he come? What will he do? And now, in Paul's day, all of this had been made known. God, as it were, had taken away the scaffolding that had surrounded his son throughout the whole of the Old Testament Scriptures. And he had said, now, do you see the revelation of this mystery that I have kept, as it were, within my heart so that it would be revealed at the right time, and now is the right time. And yet, strikingly, as he's argued all the way through Romans, this mystery that was kept secret for long ages. Remember how Amos says the Lord does nothing without revealing His secrets to His servants, the prophets. And some of them had been given little glimpses. Moses had been given a little glimpse and recorded it in Genesis 3.15 as that word had been passed down through the generations. God is going to send the serpent crusher. And Moses himself had spoken about a day when a prophet greater, far greater than himself, would arise. And David had seen 
that the Lord would set his own Son upon the throne of the universe and bring the nations into subjection to him. And Jeremiah had seen that someday in some way God would make a new covenant that would bring about the final forgiveness of sins. And Isaiah, who had mounted, as it were, to the top of the Old Testament revelation of the coming one, had seen that one would come who would be wounded and bruised and chastised and demeaned and unrecognized for the sins of his people. And all believing people throughout the Old Testament days had was the promise that God had revealed these secrets that had been revealed to his servants, the prophets, and passed on in these, as Hebrews 1 says, these fragmentary ways, little pieces of the jigsaw puzzle as though God had given His people a Rubik cube of squares that they had to try and work together in order to get the whole picture, but they, they didn't have the, the key, the secret that would enable them to assemble all these things together to see that the serpent crusher and the prophet greater than Moses and the one in whom the new covenant would be bonded and the king who would sit upon the throne and the suffering servant who would give his life blood for the sins of his people were actually all one and the same person. And now all this has become clear. All the lines, the tributaries of Old Testament revelation, they have all, as it were, come in a great confluence, pointing to God's Son, Jesus Christ. And now the secret kept hidden for long ages disclosed through the prophetic writings, has been made known, and here's the astonishing thing, among all nations, according to God's command. Isn't that the very thing that Paul speaks about when he addresses himself to the Athenians? that the time has come now when God commands in the light of the giving of His Son that all men everywhere should come to repentance. This was one of the things, of course, that the Apostle Paul had embedded in him right from the very beginning of his call into gospel ministry. It's shattering what Ananias was told to tell to Saul of Tarsus. God is calling you to go to the Gentiles. It's amazing, isn't it, when you read through the Acts of the Apostles and you see that even while Saul of Tarsus was being brought to his knees and God was commissioning him to go to the Gentiles, Simon Peter, the leading apostle, was still grappling with the issue of whether the gospel of Jesus Christ was only for Jews. And it was one of the staggering things Actually, it's a wonderful indication for all the struggles they had of the humility of those 
Jewish apostles, but they gave Saul of Tarsus the right hand of fellowship when God had specifically commissioned him to go to the nations to bring about the obedience of faith. And in a way, it had been a mystery. Certainly, the apostles didn't understand it. Even after they'd lived with Jesus, they still weren't able rightly to read the Old Testament Scriptures. They couldn't clearly see what was embedded there, hidden like a, like a code in the Old Testament Scriptures that God was a God of the nations, that the missionary God was a God for the Gentiles. And hard for them then to take in the promise that was given to Abraham that in his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed, or what it would mean when God said to his son in the second Psalm, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. Or what could be the meaning of that statement about the coming servant of the Lord, that he would be a light to the nations? Or how could it be that the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53 would be a Savior who would go and bring redemption to the nations? Until our Lord Jesus Christ stood on the Mount of Transfiguration and said to His disciples, Go to the nations and make disciples of them. And Paul feels the thrill of this. Of course, he feels the thrill of this. He's been speaking about this from chapter 15. He feels the thrill of this because he's been involved in it. That's how you feel the thrill of the gospel. You don't feel the thrill of the gospel by sitting in a vacuum and studying Romans. You feel the thrill of the gospel when you're caught up in this gospel and you become part of the great missionary enterprise of the church of Jesus Christ, which is to take the message of Jesus Christ to the nations. That's what brings you into this kind of thrill. And Paul was overwhelmed by this thrill that he'd experienced, that he who had been a Gentile hater and a Jesus hater was now a Jesus lover, a Jesus minister. And was even, as he says to the Ephesians, prepared to become a prisoner for the sake of the Gentiles. That's what thrilled him that God had caught him up into his purposes. Oh, my dear friends, that's a great thing. I long that we should taste something of that. That's, that's why we belong to a church, and we're not just isolated individuals, so that we may be caught up into this great mission of God to the nations. And as we give ourselves to it, may feel something of this apostolic thrill that causes us to be bowed down under the sheer weight of the blessing of being caught up into God's purposes and made part of them.
I hope at the end of Romans we don't have a diminished view of what it means to be a Christian. That's our great problem, isn't it? That it should be a little thing and a trivial thing, a manageable thing, instead of an overwhelming thing and an all-encompassing reality for us and a life-transforming, sacrifice-producing, missionary-going, gospel-thrilling way of life. And so he's thrilled by this to him who is able to strengthen him. My, no wonder he believes God is able to strengthen him according to this gospel. The mystery that was kept hidden for ages and now has been disclosed through the prophetic writings and made known to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God. You need a fair amount of gray matter to follow Paul here, don't you? He's building it up. Where are you going, Paul? God's able to strengthen you according to His gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ in that gospel, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed through the prophetic writings. It's been made known to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God. Paul, tell me what the command of the eternal God is about. It's to bring about the obedience of faith. You remember Paul had used that right at the very beginning of Romans. He had said this was the calling God had given him to bring about the obedience of faith among the nations. And we noted then what a striking expression this is. What does Paul mean? Well, books are written on what Paul meant by this expression, the obedience of faith, but it's fairly clear, isn't it? That actually when you come to believe in Jesus Christ, you're being obedient to the command of the gospel that tells you to believe. And when you come to believe in Jesus Christ, you come to obey Him. Because if you don't obey Him, you can't be trusting Him. That's a very simple reality, isn't it? But a profound one. Faith is obedience to God's command to trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And in daily life, faith expresses itself and looks like a life of absolute obedience to the Lord Jesus in everything. And that's Paul's passion. Indeed, he had said, remember in chapter 6, verse 17, that's essentially what it means to be converted you become obedient to the heart, to the form of teaching, the shape of the gospel to which you are committed by the proclamation of that gospel and by the power of the Holy Spirit.
the New Testament views, that is to say, a disobedient Christian as a contradiction in terms. If I live persistently in disobedience, it's a figment of my imagination that I can do so and be living the Christian life. You may be a Christian, but you have no reason to believe that you're a Christian if you live in persistent resistance of the commands of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the obedience of faith, that's what, that's what the gospel is for. It's what God calls us into. That's, that's what His power strengthens us to participate in, bringing about the obedience of faith among the nations. Oh, you say, that's not easy. Well, he didn't say it would be easy. But he did say it would be obedience. And it would bring us great joy. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Is it infantile regression that makes me remember those words from my early years? Or is it that they're true? So he praises God for his power. But then in verse 27, he continues to praise God for his wisdom. And this is so interesting because, in a sense, you can see why he would praise God for his power, because the whole book has been about the power of God for salvation in the gospel to everyone who believes. So why now, in the second place, does he, does he express this doxology to God as, notice the language he uses in verse 27, as the only wise God, the only wise God. God. Well, as I hinted, if you turn over your page in the New Testament and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you'll get a hint of why he says this. Because without expounding it in any detail, he's made in Romans the very same point that he makes here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, especially from verse 18 through verse 31, where he speaks about the work of God in Jesus Christ as an explanation and exposition of the power of God. The saving power of God is marvelous because God displays that power in the abject weakness of the cross of Jesus Christ. So that for those who are looking for power, He points us to the cross and says, here is the power of God. There is no other power in the cosmos in history that can deliver us from the dominion of sin, from the guilt of sin, from the shame of sin, from bondage to sin, from death, from Satan, from hell, from judgment. 
There is no power in the universe that is greater than the power of the weakness of the crucified Christ in his weakness. And at the same time, he wants to say there is no greater wisdom in all the cosmos than the wisdom our God has shown in bringing salvation to lost sinners in such a way that his perfect justice may be satisfied and his overwhelming grace, mercy, and love may be demonstrated. That's the wisdom of God in the gospel. But he has devised in the wonder of his wisdom this marvelous way in which he might save sinners who are his enemies by nature and by nature children of wrath and at the same time exercise his holy judgment against sin and his righteousness in dealing with sinners. That's why we sometimes sing about the cross as the trysting place where heaven's love and heaven's justice meet. Actually, the language of Christ, that's kind of romantic language, isn't it? Did you ever have a Christ, you know, or a trysting place where you and the love of your life would go and meet, and it became the place that was identified with perhaps the first expressions of your love and your affection. And God is saying He has a trysting place where He can meet with us in His wisdom, the holy, the infinitely holy God, before whom the cherubim veil their faces, utterly holy, though they are, they veil their faces before the face of the one who is thrice holy in his being and nature. And he has devised a place where sinful man who is to be consumed by such holiness may be by this holy God who judges sin saved by the very means through which he judges that sin in his beloved Son, our substitute and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's awe-inspiring, this wisdom, that God is utterly consistent in his justice and his love and says to us, Meet me there, will you? That will be the trysting place for holy God and sinful man when we meet together at the cross. And of course, he had worked this through marvelously. He had worked this through the opening eight chapters. There are so many illustrations of this. How wise of God, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, that he should use our tribulations in order to produce glory in us. That's so wise, worldly men and women can't grasp that. That in God's economy for his people, 
the very things that cause them to suffer, the very opposition they may experience from non-Christians, actually in the wisdom of God, becomes the secure instrument by which He shapes us, by which He molds us into the likeness of Christ and chips away anything that is unlike the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the secret that so many of the martyrs have grasped hold of that have made them wonders to the world. There is absolutely nothing that man can do to the Christian that can destroy the Christian. All that man can do to the Christian in his antagonism against the Christian is become an instrument in the hands of a wise God to make that Christian more and more like his Savior, her Savior, Jesus Christ. It's absolutely amazing. He is so wise. That is to say, he is able to produce the goals that are the aspirations of his heart by the most perfect way possible in a fallen world. And actually, these closing chapters from 12 through 15, they too have been about the wisdom of God because they've, they've taught the church how to live together in the midst of all their differences, differences of ethnicity, differences of practice. And God has taught them wisdom in Jesus Christ how to live together as a united people, how to live in harmony despite all the differences because they belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, and each one recognizes that Jesus Christ has welcomed all. That's why I think Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, that it's in the church that God has put on a display of His wisdom to the principalities and powers. I don't think it matters too much, at least for our purposes, whether He means demonic powers or angelic powers, or both, that God is able to say, do you see my son's church? Behold my wisdom. I don't know why, but when I was driving to church this evening, I started thinking about different people in our congregation, and I wondered how they got on with each other because they're so radically different from each other. They do it through the wisdom of God, causes us to love one another earnestly from the heart. And all of this, he says, you notice, all of this leads us to give praise and glory through Jesus Christ. Interesting you should come back to that, isn't it? Remember how we noticed at the end of chapter 5 that our salvation is in Jesus Christ, at the end of chapter 6 that our salvation is in Jesus Christ, at the end of chapter 7 that our salvation is in Jesus Christ, at the end of chapter 8 nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus 
our Lord. And so he comes to a conclusion, and he says, Therefore, it's through this same Jesus Christ that all glory and praise be offered to God. To God alone be the glory. And actually, that's been his whole theme. He began by speaking about the way in which man exchanged the glory of God for idolatry. He'd gone on, you remember, in chapter 3 to say, we've all sinned and fallen short of His glory. He'd spoken about the way how through Jesus Christ, being justified by faith, we rejoice in our hope of the glory of God. He'd spoken in chapter 8 about the way in which through tribulations we are brought to glory and how at the last we will be filled with that glory. He'd said at the end of his great explanation of God's wisdom working in history with Jew and Gentile, to God alone be all the glory. And remarkably in chapter 15 and verse 7, when he had come to the end of speaking about the way in which we have fellowship with one another, he had said, Chapter 15, verse 7, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. It would be interesting to know if he'd ever heard one of the apostles recite the prayer that the Lord Jesus had prayed in that last evening of his ministry before his crucifixion when in prayer he had said to his father, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. When God's people embrace one another in the love and fellowship of the gospel, Shekinah glory dwells upon them. And I say, we don't, under, we don't expect people who aren't Christians to be able to fathom what it is that they sense when they come among the Lord's people living in happy fellowship, mutual reconciliation, love and affection for one another with a single aim to bring the name of Jesus Christ most gloriously to the world in which we live but sometimes by what they say, it's clear that they have tasted a little bit of this amazing glory. So this gospel comes from the glory. This gospel brings us to the glory. And this gospel is for the glory of God. When I said I'd never taken a congregation through Paul's letter to the Romans, I was speaking the truth, although in some ways it's not the whole truth of my life. Somewhere around 42 or 43 years ago, I embarked on an experiment as a student I'd become convinced as a teenager that the Bible has a shape and that in many ways Paul's letter to the Romans was key to that shape. 
And so when I had opportunity in the intervarsity group to which I belonged and to which I owe an enormous debt, I spent a year with a group of other students teaching my way. I can hardly believe I had the brass neck to do it through Romans. It became a thing to us. We uh, were young, we were naive, we were students. We said silly things like to people, have you done Romans? And it became a mark of grace in our naivety that when we looked at people's Bibles from the side in their teenage years, if the little bit that we knew was Romans wasn't more frayed than other books, we questioned whether they'd really been converted and we were so foolish. But none of us ever regretted it. Two of this book in your mind and in your heart, those early days. And as I think of what many of these brothers and sisters have done these last 40 years, yes, some have fallen by the wayside because it's not the study of Romans on itself that strengthens us, but the gospel that we receive in Romans that strengthens us. But when I think of the way these young men and women, now middle-aged and elderly men and women, have for forty and more years served the Lord Jesus Christ and seen men and women and boys and girls from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth come to faith in Jesus Christ and be strengthened. I look back on those days when we were so naive and yet in God's mercy got hold of something. And the gospel, what Paul calls my gospel, took hold of us. And all these years, this great word of the apostles has been true, that God has strengthened us according to my gospel. Well, this is just the beginning. I hope that as the days pass, that little bit of your Bible with Romans in it will look as though it's been fairly well thumbed. To the only wise God, therefore, be glory forevermore. I think I've told you how my great mentor, William Still, said to me one day, Sinclair, I never preach now, but I believe that something will be done that lasts for all eternity. And so we pray together tonight that when the truth is out in glory, there will be something about us as individuals and if we're ever given a little opportunity for a First Presbyterian Church Columbia reunion, that others will say, you look like somebody who studied Romans sometime between 2008 and 2010, because it really can make 
that kind of impression as we've been singing of God's indelible grace. May it be so. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word and for the joy it's been to us together to study it. Thank you for the ways in which some evenings you've stretched our minds and others you have stretched our emotions. And always you have sought to bring us by your grace to a closer and greater view of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray, our Heavenly Father, that you would seal this word, this letter to the Romans in our hearts, and that these years after it was penned under the direction of your Holy Spirit, your Spirit will continue to use it in our lives for your glory and through us for the blessing of many others. And we pray this. In Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen.